0: good news. As Christians, we have been graced with eyes to see sin and the destruction that sin brings. We know it causes violence and we know it seeks out violence. It hates God and it hates all who are in God's household. But as Christians, you find your shelter and salvation in Christ. He is your rock that cannot be moved and the fortress that cannot be breached. He is the ark that delivers you from judgment and death. You've entered into Christ by faith, and by faith you remain. In Christ you have the blood of Jesus covering you, so that when the day of judgment comes, and it will come, your judgment will be passed over because you are covered in the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. The reading of God's word this morning begins in Exodus chapter 12. And we'll begin in verse 1 and read the entire chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their fathers' households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house, or to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the, the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that same night, "'Roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. "'Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, "'both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. "'And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, "'but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. "'Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, "'and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. "'It is Yahweh's Passover.'" For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh, and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood which I I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you. And you shall celebrate it as a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And on the first day you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person that alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For Yahweh will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come in your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. And it will come about when you enter the land which Yahweh will give you, as he promised, that you shall observe this right. And it will come about when your children will say to you, What does this right mean to you? That you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice to Yahweh who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now it came about at midnight that Yahweh struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on this throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go, worship Yahweh, as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and go, and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls bound up and the clothes on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And Yahweh had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. And a mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. And they baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it uh, it had not become leavened, since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came about at the end of 430 years to the very day that all the hosts of Yahweh went out from the land of Egypt. It is at night to be observed for Yahweh for having brought them out from the land of Egypt. This night is for Yahweh to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it, but every man's slave purchase with money after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised. And then let him come near to celebrate it, and he shall be like a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native and to the stranger who sojourns among you. Then all the sons of Israel did so. They did just as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron. And it came about on the same day that Yahweh brought the sons of Israel out by the land of Egypt by their hosts. We'll turn now to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, <clears throat> and begin reading in verse 1. <clears throat> Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east, east, went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and its environs from two years old and under, according to the time which had been ascertained from the Magi. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod was Um, was dead behold an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying arise and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead and he arose and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel but when he heard that the uh, Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod he was afraid to go there and being warned by God in a dream he departed for the regions of Galilee And came and resided in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. If you would, please turn to the back of your bulletins. We'll read together as a congregation, Psalm 53. Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God... There they are, in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning. Good morning. So as was already mentioned this Sunday we begin our Advent series looking forward and backwards to the coming birth of our Savior King. When I think about Advent the passage that usually comes to mind for me is the one based on the song or that is the basis of the song that we just sang that Jesus, his name shall be called Emmanuel, which of course means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And then you have to ask the question, and this is the question we will be asking, is what does that mean, that God is with us? What does Matthew mean when he opens his gospel with this reminder that the child sign, God with us, that God will dwell among us, what are the implications of that sign? And Matthew's gospel answers that in a way that we can draw back to the festival of Passover, and so we're going to do that this morning. I'll I'll give you a road map here in a minute, but I want to open in prayer first as we ask God to open our ears. So, if you would bow with me, and let's pray. Lord, we draw near to you. We want to hear your word. We need to hear your word. We know that this word is like a two-edged sword; it's able to pierce soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and the attentions of our hearts. Even though this is a dangerous task, Lord, we gladly come under the knife of the living God, knowing that in it you give a promise of resurrection. And so we ask this morning for a twofold blessing from you. We ask that you would fill your word with the spirit by which it's made powerful and goes out and does not return empty. And we ask that you would complete in us the work of boring our ears open to hear the depths and the wonders and the mysteries of your word, not as slaves now, but as adopted sons welcomed into your house, hearing the counsel and the wisdom of the Father who made the heavens and the earth through the spoken word, Jesus. And so we pray that you would do that in the name of Jesus who walks among us today. Amen. I was considering this week as uh, as I studied um, what it means and why it is that Jesus is presented as a child. We could skip we could skip right from the virgin birth to Jesus as a man. And yet there's a presentation that Hyde read for us this morning of Jesus as a child. And uh, I I want to reread A little bit of that passage because there's an assonance to it that I hadn't heard before. So let me just read these few verses. Then Herod secretly called the Magi. He ascertained from them the time of the star, the time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way, and, lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and they came into the house, and they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down, and they worshipped him, and they opened their treasures, and they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country, By another way. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Arise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose, and he took the child and his mother by night, and he departed for Egypt. You skip down to verse 20, you'll find the same assonance. Arise, as. God is talking to Joseph, arise, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and he took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. It should strike you as a little bit odd. We just learned that his name is Jesus, that this is God with us. And yet in this passage after his birth, the way that Matthew presents him is as the child. There's no there's no name attached. It's the child, the child, the child, the child. Herod refers to the child. God refers to the child. Everybody is speaking then about this child. And I think that there is significance there in answering the question, what does it mean, God with us? And we're going to answer that question first now through looking at a series of Israel's feasts. They look backwards, they look forwards, and they look to the presence of present, all considering what it means that God dwells among us, what it means that God is coming, that he has come, that he will come, what it means that we here today, we meet with the living God, we experience an Advent as we we arrive in God's presence today. God is dwelling in our midst, and God invites us into his presence so that today, as you sit and you listen and as we eat and we drink, John tells us in Revelation that Jesus, he walks among us. He physically walks among us. So God dwelling with us is this big picture that runs throughout the whole Bible, but it begins here in Matthew with a significance that looks backwards. So if you read Matthew's gospel, the first thing that he gives us is a genealogy. So God with us arises out of the root of the nation of Israel and the promises to the nation of Israel celebrated in seven feasts. And it looks forward then to this second passage in chapter 2 about what happens to the child. And I want to answer the question then, why why does Matthew present Jesus as the child, and what does it have to do for us today with the Feast of Passover? I've been thinking about children this week. We have house guests. They're right there in the back. They have six children, and so that meant that our house was filled with children this week. And uh, children are not quiet, and when you add two children together, they get increasingly loud and when you add eleven children together it's exponentially loud and in our house we have tile floors much to the chagrin of my father because that noise you, you get an extra reverberation it's like a drum beat. and so the children shout and uh, sometimes I, w- I was sitting there trying to work one day and it sounded like the shout of war in the camp the whole house is shaking with noise now. That's not a bad thing. They're, they're children. They're shouts of joy. And yet it sounds, it sounds like war. It's loud. I was thinking about children and uh, reading an article then this week about children and Hamas, so onto a more serious version of, of children. And Hamas took children, and, and one of the things that they did they kidnapped children, they brought them into their land, and they, they uh, branded them. So they branded them with the side of a motorcycle tailpipe so they could identify uh, these are children of Israel. If they run away, we know, we know who they are and we'll collect them, we'll bring them back. And they, they were using those children then as, as ransom, as trading cards in the war against Israel. And we can look at that and we can look at the atrocities that were committed not so many weeks ago now. And it seems terrible. And indeed, it is terrible. But what you find out very quickly is that at the heart of war are children. Ever since the beginning, ever since Genesis 3, when God declared that a seed was coming, war has revolved around children because war is forward-looking. You're fighting for something. You're fighting against something that you don't have right now. And so that war naturally becomes focused on children. It's for children, but more than that, it uses children. Children are, are then the fodder that feeds into war. And you can see that in this passage we're looking at today. What does it mean that God is with us, that Jesus comes? Well, one of the things that it means is that Jesus comes into the middle of history, into the middle of a, a, a world at war, and he comes as a child. And right away we see then Herod... He responds to this child, the seed coming as the king. And he responds in fear and he starts putting children to death in Bethlehem. So he slays all the children under the age of two. Children are are naturally involved in this war. And we we can think about our own world. It's no different. right? Even though Hamas and Israel are fighting far away from us, we've noted this already, We, we put children to death and it's part of a war. There is an... Ideological war in which we kill children in order to to further our our purposes, and so our nation does this we 're expanding that war right now, so that not only are children put to death but children are mutilated, transformed into something that they ought not to be. their minds are attacked, and children are, children are made into slaves and serfs, and they serve the, the will of those who sit on top. So there's a war of children. It's a war that we haven't always taken note of, but it's one that's been always in the background. A war for the minds of children, using children as fodder. So if you would, turn with me back, and and the track we're going to take, we started in Matthew 2, we're going to go back to Exodus chapter 2, so if you would turn with me there. We're going to make our way to a discussion of the implications of Passover, which is normally an, an Easter text, a Good Friday text, but today we're going to look at it as the implications of God coming among our midst. And specifically in Exodus 1 and 2, we have a, a line drawn for us backwards from Matthew to Exodus where we compare the advent of God among mankind where Herod the king responds by putting children to death. And we intentionally then to speak, to, to think of Moses. In the middle of a similar problem, a similar war that happened centuries before, God sent a deliverer, another advent, this time in a man, but God, God raised him up, God put his spirit within him, and God came then in the person of Moses. Now, a, a couple things we need to take note of here in this passage. If you look back to Exodus 1, I know I said 2, we're going to read out of 2, but first, first in Exodus 1, if you look in verse 15, the king spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah, and the other was named Pua, and he said, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birthstool, if it's a son, then you shall put them to death. If it's a daughter, then she shall live. So here, Israel is enslaved under Pharaoh. There's been a transfer of kings. The kings forgot who, who Joseph was. It's been 200 years now in, in, in enslavement in the land of Egypt. They've forgotten, and the new king arises. He puts the Israelites under forced and bitter labor, and then out of fear, because they're a, a vigorous people, because God is growing them and blessing them and, and, and growing a great multitude out of them. He says that the sons must be put to death. And you all know the story. The midwives refused. They lied. God blessed them. And God continued to multiply the people. God keeps his promises. But then move your eyes down to, uh, let's read verse 20. So God was good to the midwives. The people multiplied and they became very mighty. And it came about because the midwives feared God that he established Households for them. So notice they rejected the commands of Pharaoh, and God raised up households for them. He built up their house. They were established in the midst of a wicked land. God established the households of the the midwives. And then, verse 22 Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to throw into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Now think about that for just a second, who Pharaoh is talking to. First, he gives a command to the, the Hebrew midwives about the Hebrew women. But the way verse 22 is phrased, Pharaoh commanded all of his people. So now everybody is brought into this battle. So all of the Egyptians, and theoretically all of the Hebrews together, are commanded with this command. Every Every one of the people says, every son who is born, you're to cast into the Nile. There's a certain ambiguity about that verse. We, we would naturally consider that what Pharaoh is actually commanding is every son of the Hebrews is to be thrown in the Nile. And surely that is what actually happened. But the way that it's recorded for us, there's this ambiguity in the text and that you don't know that it's just talking about the Hebrews. Instead, every person, all his people are commanded, throw every son into the Nile. So all of the male children are to be tossed into the waters. At least that's the way the verse sounds. So the king is putting his subjects to death. He's sacrificing the future generation of males, but He does something else. So the daughters are separated. So every daughter is to be kept alive. What does that mean? Pharaoh's war is not just on the sons. He's putting the sons to death because the sons are a threat. The sons keep up the name of the household. There's a household before God. But when he preserves the life of the daughters, he's preserving them as part of his harem. He's taking them into his own. So this is a war for children. And we're going to find out if you, we'll come back to chapter 2 here in just a second. But when when God sends Moses to Pharaoh in chapter 4, verse 22, the request is exactly this. God said to Pharaoh, this is what he says, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I'm telling you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go, and behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So there's this battle that occurs over children. Pharaoh wants the males put to death, the females brought into his house. And it's, it's a battle over who is the father. God says, Israel is my firstborn. Pharaoh says, no, Israel belongs to me. They're slaves in my house. They're effectively my children. And if I want to put them to death, I'll put them to death. It should without any, any significant meditation, remind you of the passage we just read in Matthew chapter 2. The child is born, and Herod's response, as soon as his, his first tactic fails, he sends the magi, he says, you go find out where he's at, and then you report back to me so he can kill the specific child. When that tactic fails, just as Pharaoh's first tactic failed to kill the Hebrew children, he says, all right, kill them all. We'll just kill them all. Now, in the midst of that, we read about the coming of God, how he's going to send a deliverer. So, look with me then in Exodus chapter 2. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and she bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. So, immediately in the story, we're supposed to think all right, what's going to happen? He's going to be thrown into the Nile. And, and by the way, the Nile, there's, there's two gods of the Nile, Halpi and Sobek. Sobek is a crocodile a crocodile god that lives in the Nile. So when you throw the sons in, you, you're, you're feeding the gods, the gods of Egypt. The crocodile god has, has lunch. And we're wondering then, what, what's going to happen? Verse 3, but when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket, and she covered it with tar and pitch, and she put the child in it, and she set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to discover what would happen to him. And then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. And then listen to how Moses writes this. Your translation may not show it, but this is what it says. When she opened, she saw the child. And behold, the child was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child, the child, away and nurse him for me, and I shall give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses. And she said, because I drew him out of many waters. So God brought a deliverer called the child. And God raised up the child out of the water, out of the murderous intent of Pharaoh. So this is then directly parallel to what we read in the Advent. Jesus is born, Emmanuel, God, with us. Well, what does it mean that God is with us? Of course, it means that God has come to dwell in human flesh, but not just any human flesh. He enters into the war that's going on around, he places his son on earth in front of a murderous king in his land. And we're reminded of that in the book of Matthew that Jesus is born from a lineage of Israel. So he's born into this place of the sons of Judah who now reside under King Herod. And in Matthew chapter 2, his people reject him. So King Herod at the lead with all of the people behind him, we won't go back there, but there's there, there, there a, there a verbal clue that Herod's not on his own. It's with all of the nation that wants to hunt down and put to death Jesus and the sons of God. And so we have then this parallel. God sends Moses. God sends Jesus. Well, what does it mean now that God has come? There's a sequence of events, then, that we should expect out of the book of Matthew that, of course, occur. And they, they call us, then, to the Feast of Passover. So you continue on the story of Moses. I'm not going to read it for you. I'll, I'll just summarize it. Moses grows up, and you remember he, he comes as a judge. He grows up in the house of Pharaoh, and that's, that's on purpose. Uh, we're supposed to recognize that Moses appears to be the adopted son of Pharaoh. There's a parallelism that occurs not just between Moses and Jesus, but between Moses and all of the sons of Israel. Moses grows up in the palace, but all of the sons of Israel are growing up in the shadow of their father, Pharaoh, their adopted father, Pharaoh. And in Exodus, we don't read about their complicity in this act, but we do later on in the prophets. They they tell us that not only had Pharaoh forgotten uh, who God was, who the sons of Israel were, but the sons of Israel had forgotten who they were. They had begun to worship the Egyptian gods, and probably we could argue that Pharaoh forgot because they forgot that the the sin resided with the people of God, and so they're complicit. They actually have become part of Pharaoh's household where they recognize Pharaoh as father. They worship the gods of Pharaoh. They bow down before the, the, the Sobic crocodile god and recognize him as... As their father, so Moses is raised up in this house, just as the sons of Israel are. Now remember, in our other context in Matthew chapter two, we have a nation full of Israel, and they're living under King Herod, who's a new pharaoh, a new murderous king who wants to make the image, the the, the nation in his own image, and they are. They're falling prey to that. They're becoming like Edomites, who Herod was. He was he was a son of Edom, an Edomite. So the, they're becoming just like the Egyptians were, just like Herod is. And so now we have this conflict in which there's a battle. And in becoming like Egypt, in becoming like Herod, they're willing to sacrifice their children to the gods of the nations. Moses enters into this and he becomes a judge and a deliverer. So he strikes down uh, strikes down one of Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's men and then covers him in the sand. We, we um, I'm not going to go through what that means exactly. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. And then he runs away. So he escapes to the land of Midian. And what you see in the ensuing chapters is that he's he's married there. He has a son, Gershom, which means wanderer. And then he comes back into the land. He crosses over the river. And in chapter 2, we have a strange story about how Gershom must be circumcised. The blood falls down on his legs. And then he's allowed back into the land of Egypt. My point in all of this is a simple one. When God raised up Moses, he did so as the child in the midst of children being put to death. And God raised up Moses as this deliverer, God who will be with the people in the midst of the people in the midst of their bitter agony, which is their own fault. And what God does in this is he has Moses go through everything that the nation of Israel will undergo first. He's he's the prince that goes on ahead. He exits the land first. He he goes through the waters first. He's setting the path for the nation of Israel to father. And so so when we look at Jesus, the advent of the child king, he goes first. He goes on ahead of us. He is the Passover sacrifice first. And what what I'm going to trace us through is that that first... There's, there's a sequence to it in which we all follow then, as the sons of Israel followed Moses, we follow Jesus, and that's not the end of the story. So Passover is going to call us something to something more than just looking backwards. All right. On to Passover. Exodus chapter 12. I want to spend a few minutes here describing the feast and then we'll, uh, we'll tie this together. And I, I have some, some things I want us to think about uh, for Advent. So Exodus chapter 12 and verse 1. Now Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Now stop right there and make an observation. Just recalling the whole story, God has brought Moses in, he's he sent him to Pharaoh. He's, t- he's told him to tell Pharaoh that just as Moses is God's son, just as Gershom is Moses' firstborn son, so now the nation of Israel is God's firstborn, and he demands them back. He demands their presence in the wilderness to worship him. He demands them to go three days out, three days' journey into the wilderness to worship him. And, of course, Pharaoh refused. Ten times, or nine times, he's, he's refused. And now God is putting in action his threat to Pharaoh. You're killing my son, I will kill your son. A life for a life. Only God, too, like Pharaoh, is not just going to put to death Pharaoh's son, he's going to put to death all firstborn sons. Remember, Pharaoh said, all the people throw all the sons in the river. God, too, is interested in the death of all the firstborn sons. And Passover, the instructions here, then, are about the redemption of those who will place their trust in God, so those sons who will obey him in this command. And he says that this feast, a feast now which we're reading about it, it's an action, but it's looking backwards on what God did in the nation of Israel. This feast is going to mark the beginning of time for you. This month shall be the first of all months. It's to be the first of the month of the year. And so, what we find out in our our first observation about Passover, when God brings the people out, when he marks them with the blood of the Lamb, that we'll read about here in just a second, that God says that this feast, this time, what God is doing is the beginning. God's making a new world, a new calendar. We've been studying that in, in Colossians, so it should be familiar to you. God creates a new world. He makes a new calendar in Colossians, but here he does it in Passover. Passover is the start of a new calendar. This is a new year, a new month. And so everything that follows thereafter is the beginning. Think about the implications of that for a second. If you, if you actually take it at face value, God is making a new timetable. This is the first of the month for you. Now, everybody in that timetable is new. When God made Adam and Eve in the garden, they, they might have old, had old bodies, but they were children. So Passover marks the beginning in which everybody is now a child. Because it's the beginning of time. It's the first of the year, the first of the month. And what we're going to find out as we, as we look through the feast is that it calls us forward. But this is the foundation of what God is doing. This is the beginning of time for you. And so your children here. But what we read about in Passover is not the end. And that's sometimes the mistake that we, we, we make when we think about the coming of God. That the redemption idea that we find in Passover is all that God is doing. But it's not. This Passover feast is going to call us from the beginning of time into a maturity of time. And so there's seven, there's seven feasts. If you paid attention to the email, you'll have them in your mind. If you didn't, I'll get to them here in a little bit. But those seven feasts all feed out of Passover. There's a growth from childhood to maturity, and this is the foundation. So verse 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel. Just a freebie here. The congregation, this is the first time they're called a congregation of Israel. So this is the first time they're in assembly together. They've been transformed, are being transformed from a household into an assembly before God. Speak to all the congregation of Israel and say to them, On the tenth of the month, they're each to take a lamb or a kid, so that's a, a goat for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. So, what God is telling them to do, um, just, we kind of gloss over this. On the 10th of the month, this is what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to pick out a lamb or a kid. So, remember, Passover is not going to happen until the 14th. So this happens before, the the 10th of the month, so four days, five days before, depending on how you're counting. Um, They're to pick pick out this lamb for themselves. But then the next question is, who's doing it? Who's doing the picking? So take a lamb for yourselves, and he's speaking to all the congregation of Israel, but he speaks then specifically that how they're to do it is according to the house of their father. A lamb for each house. Now, what is a house? What is a house under God's definition? We can think of an extended household, but in Genesis two, when a man leaves, when a man is married, he leaves father and mother, and there's a new house. So these houses, according to each house, these are houses of what we would think of as the immediate family. Now, there can be servants in the house, there's animals that are part of the house, but then it's this immediate family area that is the house. So according to your father's house, well, the implication there is not that you have a 60-year-old man picking out the lamb in his 80-year-old great-great-grandfather's house, but that the son is taking the lamb, the child's son is taking the lamb in his father's house. Verse 5, that that sacrifice, the lamb, the kid, the goat, shall be unblemished, it's a male, a year old, and you can take it from the sheep or the goats. So you have three specifications, four if you include the, the choice of a sheep or a goat. And those specifications are it needs to be unblemished, spotless. We're familiar with that from the sacrificial system, the the lamb, the kid, the goat has to have no imperfections because this is a sacrifice to God. And then it has to be a male, and the importance there is it's a representation of the son of the household. So it's, it's the son that's in danger. It's the sons that, that Pharaoh is putting to death, and it's the sons that God is going to put to death, the firstborn son specifically. But all of the house is included in this, so it, it, doesn't, it represents the firstborn son that lamb or that kid. But all of the house falls under the blood then of this representative firstborn son. And we know then that it represents a child. It's unblemished male, a year old. So you weren't allowed to take a sacrifice for the first seven days while, while, they're, while they're an infant before they're weaned. But then they can be separated. And so from day eight until the, the first year, then you have the lamb or the kid and they represent then this child. And you keep it then until the 14th day of the same month, and then simultaneously this whole congregation, the whole assembly of Israel, rises up to kill at twilight. So right at the end of the day, as the sun is setting, the, uh, at the end of the 14th, they take and they, they kill these lambs. Now, the, the way that this has been interpreted over time and there, there's reasonable textual clues for this: is that what it means to take the lamb or the kid is you take it into your house. It becomes one of your household members. And so for, from the 10th to the 14th, that, that lamb or that, that kid lives with you, climbs into bed with you. Maybe that's a little too far, but lives in your house. If your kids do that, that's your business. I don't advise it, but some do. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts on the lintel of the houses in which, they shall, in which they eat it. And then they eat the flesh the same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Now the whole household, and if you're too, too small, then you gather your neighbors together. So there's this nature of both a conflation of the house and the entire assembly of Israel doing this together. It's an assembly of houses. And they're called, of course, to put the blood on the doorposts, on the lintel above it, and then they roast the flesh in fire. It's a sacrifice before God, but this sacrifice they consume. So they participate in it. They eat the sacrifice. They're eating the representative son into themselves. It's a weird, weird idea for us. We'll, we'll get to that in just a second. And, of course, they eat it uh, They eat it with bitter herbs representing all of the bitter labor that's gone on before. And they eat it with their loins girded, their sandals on their feet, verse 11, and the staff in the hand, and they eat it in haste. So one thing you should notice then about Passover is the foundational feast is forward-leaning. You're, 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 you've got your, at the original Passover... Sandals on, staff in hand, loins girded up, ready to go. It's looking forward. It's not just a feast of remembrance. It's a feast that is urging on the rest of the, the, rest of the year, the rest of life, in which Israel is looking forward not just to escaping from Egypt, but to the fullness of all of the promises. They're, they're going to leave, but there's a, a buildup after this to all that God has promised to Abraham way back from Genesis 15. And then God says, this is what I'm going to do. I will go. God is the destroyer God. I will go through the land, verse 12, of Egypt on that night. I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So in Matthew 2, when we read about Jesus being born into a new Pharaoh's land, who puts children to death, we're looking forward then to this Exodus, which is the story of the book of Matthew, how God is going to call his people out of slavery from sin, out of slavery to gods that are eating them for lunch, and into his household. It's a household feast, looking at the firstborn sons being drawn in first, and that's important. We'll get to that in a minute, too. We don't have a lot of minutes left but we'll try to use them judiciously. A couple more observations that this feast, Passover feast is day one on the 14th, and then on the 15th begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So there's, there's a sequence of feasts. You move from Passover immediately into Unleavened Bread. And, so, and, and then after the first Sabbath of Unleavened Bread, you have the Feast of first fruits. So three of Israel's seven feasts happen right in a row. Passover, Unleavened Bread, and then embedded in that is the Feast of First Fruits. And they're all moving forward. And for those of you who are paying attention, three of the last feats are in the seventh month, and they, they mimic these first three feasts. There's a, 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 a trumpet blast on, on the first day of the seventh month. There's a um, Day of Atonement on the tenth day of the month that starts to model remodel this Passover. And then there's another week-long feast of booths from the 15th to the 22nd of the 7th month. So if you have ears to hear, what you're hearing is God is making a new world through this festival cycle. And it's both a cycle of seven, like he created the world, and it's a cycle of three, because three times, three groupings, God is calling his firstborn sons, his children, into his household to meet with him. This is what Advent means. Now, I'm going to skip over verses 14 to 22, and we'll just make a comment about the unleavened bread here in a minute. But I want to read uh, in verse 23. For Yahweh will pass through to smite the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and for your children forever. And it will come about when you enter the land which Yahweh will give you as he has promised that you shall observe this rite. And it will come about when your children will say to you what does this rite mean? That you shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to Yahweh who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel when he, in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but he spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. And then the sons of Israel went and did so just as Yahweh commanded Moses and Aaron and they did it. Notice there that Embedded in this feast, as it looks forward, you're leaning forward with expectation. The feast, then, is intentionally looking to children. So remember, we've got this battle battle of children that's going on. Pharaoh's trying to put the kids to death, take the daughters into his harem, and God, God is refusing. He's raised up a deliverer to deliver his son, to deliver his household, and everybody's going to come with them. But then even as we look retrospectively at the Feast of Passover, God wants the children watching what happens. And so they're intended to watch and to ask and say, what does this service mean? What is this service which you're serving before God where you're eating this roasted lamb, where you're eating the bitter herbs, what does it mean? And then there's a reply, it's Passover. It's a Passover near bringing in which we come to God and there's an identification then of the lamb, the goat, with the firstborn son, and there's a reminder about how God spared Israel, how God redeemed Israel, the firstborn sons of Israel, and then everybody thereafter while he smote the Egyptians. And so this feast, it's a feast of children. It's a feast for children, and, and in a way that we don't usually think about, it's a feast on children. It's looking forward then to the fullness of, of what's coming. This uh, picture of children asking what happens, what, what you're supposed to tell your children, it only appears three more times in Scripture, or two more times in Scripture. One is in Deuteronomy, and it's referencing backwards to the same event. The other one is in Joshua. and I, I want to make one more observation then out of that passage. So in Joshua, and you don't have to turn there, on the 10th of the month, everybody remember what the 10th of the month is? The day you pick out the lamb. On the 10th of the month, the nation of Israel that's been wandering for 40 years crosses over the river. They cross over the river Jordan going into the land. And they place stones in the middle of the river. And those 12 stones represent the children of Israel. God is bringing his children into his land. And the children are going to ask, What are these stones? And then you'll tell the children, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. There's a conflation of events here in which God is bringing the people in. It's a new Passover. But if you're paying attention, 10th of the month, you pick out the lamb. 10th of the month, Israel crosses into the land. And then on the 14th of the month, sitting under the wall of Jericho, the nation of Israel, the sons of God, are circumcised. They're helpless. Underneath the wall of their enemies and God protects them. Who is the lamb going into the land of Canaan? Who is the kid goat? It's the whole nation of Israel now. There's is a movement from Moses who goes out and comes back in. He leads the people through the water to the nation of Israel that God has redeemed. He's lifted up And now, as they enter into the land of Joshua, they cross on the river, and God is placing them in his house where he's going to dwell, the whole land of Canaan. And they are now called to be a Passover sacrifice for the land. If you look at this sequence of events in Advent, when Jesus is born, he calls us to all of this. Jesus is born the child amidst the war on children, and God raises him up. He raises him, and, and, and it, it's backwards. Now Egypt is Israel, Israel is Egypt, so that when, when God says, out of Egypt I call my son, he's, he's actually calling him out of Israel, who's become a land of, of murderous pharaohs, and calling him into the safety of Egypt. Well, he's going to go back, and Jesus goes back at the end of Matthew chapter 2, and we have this forward-looking picture to the, the Passover that occurs at the end of Matthew, where Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the 10th of the month selected out as a Passover lamb, a sacrifice, pulling in the firstborn of the sons of God, redeeming them, passing over them, so that Israel, who had become like Egypt, God calls his children out again. But remember that the sequence doesn't stop there. When God calls firstborn children, when he redeems them, with the blood of the lamb he redeems them unto being a sacrifice. Okay. So now in our brief time left, hopefully hopefully I didn't lose you too much. I want to think about then what that means. So we consider Passover. God coming with us, in our midst, dwelling in our midst as the firstborn son as the lamb of Passover. What does it mean as we look forward to all these other feasts we're going to talk about here in the next few weeks? The first thing we noticed was that Passover, Passover means that God has created a, a new world. It's a new timeline. And so the advent of this Passover God, he reminds us that we're marked now as Passover children. The blood displayed on us through the person of Christ, we've been welcomed in. We find the beginning of our days in the coming of Christ. We're made new. In the third week, we're removed from the house of Pharaoh. Related to that, the advent, the coming of this Passover God, reminds us that we have been marked, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and it's not based on what we've done. So at Passover, there's no merit. The sons of Israel were complicit in assigning themselves to the house of Pharaoh and worshiping the national gods of Egypt. But in Passover, when God comes as the destroying God, but one who is merciful, he provides a sacrifice whereby we are set free. But that is not the end of the story. We need to remember that as we think about the coming of the Savior, that God has marked us with the blood. He's called us His children. He's set us free, but that's the beginning of time, not the end of time. So that's where our life picks up. And the rest of the feast they call us then to more. Notice then, and, and I'd encourage you to read Leviticus 23 over the next few weeks as we study these these feasts. But you'll notice that the other feasts, after unleavened bread, you're called to bring in the fruit of the harvest. So each festival cycle is associated with the harvest. There's barley, then there's grain, and then there's the harvest of fruit, the wine. So you go from good to better to best in, in sequence. But even right away, after God sets the children free, just a few days later, he raises them up and they come to present before him now fruits. Where do the fruits come from? Well, the first fruits, when they enter the land in Joshua, they eat of stuff they didn't raise. They live in houses that they didn't make. Those first fruits are, are all from what God has done. But as time moves on, they have to plant the harvest. There's a new harvest, and they bring in the fruit. And so you, you, you have this sequence in which you move from having nothing to present, because we're completely sinful. We have nothing to bear before God, to a future in the next cycle of feasts, in the feast of, of, uh, of the grain, and the feast of the fruits, in which you plant and you harvest and you bring it before God as the work of our hands. Not righteous because we made ourselves righteous, but because God passed over us, marked us as our children, brought us as his children, brought us into his house, and set us up so that we're in a land where we have something to do. We work. And that same 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 truth can be seen as you move from unleavened bread and then move on to the second the second set of feasts. So remember, cycle of feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and then in the middle, on day three, month three. You have the Feast of Weeks in which you bring in the harvest of grain. And you move from unleavened bread to leavened bread. There's a a spreading. This is related to the children. First you have to cut off the sons who have fallen prey to the God of Egypt, to the Pharaoh of Egypt who are in his household. And there's a transition in which you move from children that have been raised under the dominion of Pharaoh and walk in his ways into sons that are raised in God's house. And now there's a new spreading that should occur, a spreading of the leaven of God's house in which you learn from his ways, having cut off everything that came before. And so the advent of this Passover God, here's number three, reminds us that because we've been rescued from a murderous father and brought into God's household, we're called to put away the leaven of Egypt. The leaven of the Pharaoh of Egypt who tried to barter with God to stave off a plague with the intent of gaining a strategic victory. We didn't look at it, but um, if you recall, Pharaoh tried to make deals. He'd try to say, well, you can go, but leave your kids behind. And specifically the children. Again, leave the little ones behind. Or leave, leave the little ones in the flocks behind. And so he's trying to make this, this deal. And you can see those same deals trying to be brokered right now. And which, sure, go worship in your houses, but leave your children to us. The advent of this, this God, the coming of this God, calls us to bring our families to worship. Remember, what Pharaoh didn't allow them to do was to bring the sons of God before God. What he could not allow them to do was to bring the children of God into the house of God because that would be to admit that they're not his slaves. They belong to God. Now, the same thing is true from us as we look forward from Passover, as we look forward from the coming of Jesus the child. It makes a demand upon us to put away the leaven of Egypt, the leaven of Pharaoh, means that we have to stop acting like Pharaoh. Pharaoh was willing to sacrifice the children. Remember, it was the children of a whole land in the end. He was willing to sacrifice the the children for himself, for the gods of Egypt. He pulled them back. And so we can fall into that same trap if we have learned from the world, from the murderous Herod who's willing to put children to death. And we see it overtly, of course, in the world around us. But we have to make sure that we put away the entire culture that views children, the children of God, as nothing, nothing less than ours, belonging to us, so that we can dispose of them as we see fit. Instead, they belong to God. They are God's children. And if we don't deal with them as such, if we don't give them first to him, then God will treat us as Pharaoh and Herod. And so we're called, we're called to present ourselves, fathers. We're called to present our families then together with everything that we have. All the work of our hands is living sacrifices before him. Not being conformed to this world, to the leaven of Pharaoh, to to that kind of thought process, which views children as our commodity, but instead to see them and ourselves as now sons of God brought into the house of living God to serve him. What is this service that you're doing right here? That's what the children turn to ask in Passover. Well, this service means you've been set free unto being sons of God. The advent of the God of Passover who destroys, it reminds us that when we come God did not spare his own son. Instead, he planted him in the middle of history, dwelling in flesh, and in the middle of flesh in a land that hated him, that was killing all of the sons around him. So our only response to this, to this coming of God, means that we cannot spare our children, not not from the gods of this world, but from God himself. That means we present our children, ourselves, as sacrifices before God. We present them before the one who wields the two-edged sword because in dying before God, remember the the, the lamb and the kid, they're brought before God and they're put to death. Well, we, we, we come before God to do that same thing because we believe in a God who resurrects, who gives life, and He's shown it. We send our children willingly, voluntarily, to be part of the army of Yahweh. The advent of this God... The one who's brought Passover reminds us that we who are rescued sons are now called into the firstborn of God, so we are to be part of the firstborn sacrifice. We who are rescued are called now to be rescuers, and so that when we look at ourselves, we should see God is using us now as a sacrifice, bringing us forward. So how does that affect us when we look at the feast? You move from unleavened bread to leavened bread. You move from no fruit to fruit. And you move from a firstborn son to the whole household and then to the end of it, in the Feast of Booths, all of the nations because that household of God is being offered up as a sacrifice, a voluntary Passover sacrifice to bring the nations in. If you would, stand with me and let's pray. Father God, Yahweh, we we have heard from you, and you call us to respond and worship, and so here we are. In obedience, we come to present ourselves before you, an assembly, a congregation, now a household of your making. Bind the truth of your word to us today, let it not depart from us. Let it be in our heart, coming out of our feet, on our hands and on our lips, fill us to overflowing with the knowledge of your will, the will that moves us forward from children into fathers that present children, that looks forward from the beginning of time into all that you are doing. Cause us to grow in this knowledge, to walk worthy in a manner so that we might walk worthy in a manner worthy of you. Lord, we pray that we would grow in fruit that we would increase in the knowledge of God, strengthened by your power, attaining to a sure and steady patience as we look forward with a confident expectation to yet another advent, the coming of your work among us, the fulfillment in the person of Jesus in his body. We pray these things in the name of that Savior. Amen.